All right, we've got to do a repeat performance from last week. I need to see again how many of you have ties yourself, either personally or through family, or very, very close friends, to either the Church of Christ, the Christian Church, or the Disciples of Christ. Raise your hand. Okay, I think that's at least half, maybe over half. Actually, it is over half. Um, Today, we get to finish the class we started on the restoration movement. Uh, That is the movement that's... Well, it's real interesting. That's the movement where the churches that we typically call Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, and Christian Church have descended in terms of historical flow. Um, I took the lesson this week and I emailed it out to a number of people as I typically do. And this week, the folks who got my lesson were were a bit more expansive than uh, uh, in weeks gone by. And the reason why is because there are some folks that are uh, uh, deeply involved and committed within the Church of Christ that I wanted to be able to review the lesson to make sure that I'm, I'm being fair in, in the way I represent things in the lesson. I have two reasons for that. First of all, I obviously want to be fair. It's like all those lessons on the Catholic Church. I would have all these various Catholic scholars looking at them to make sure I was, was right and fair. But I have a second more personal reason, and that is my grandmother's here this Sunday, and she's been in the Church of Christ for most of her life, and she's threatened to stand up from where she is and correct me. <laughs> If I'm wrong. And so I thought just to spare myself the humiliation of of that, I'd go ahead and run this by a few folks. And even in the process of doing that, the emails I got back are very interesting because the Church of Christ, uh, for example, um, would uh, there, there are things that have to be worded very carefully to be accurate. So when I say that these churches came through the restoration movement, I could get a response from some people within these churches that would say, no, these churches come simply from the New Testament. They don't come through any movement. They are New Testament churches. And if you want to discover their lineage, you go back to Acts chapter 2. You don't go to anything historical. And I'm going to be writing one email back in particular from a gentleman who, who... I had this uh, email from. I'm going to explain to him what I want to explain to you as we begin this. I don't mean it offensively to anybody within the, the, the Church of Christ to say that historically it flowed from this movement. Uh, um, certainly, I understand the concept of the Church of Christ in a non-denominational sense being from Jesus alone and what God set up. Um, as opposed to anything that's historical in nature. But having said that, I am a child of God. God made me, and I belong to God. But I can still historically trace my lineage through Carolyn and Bill Lanier, through my grandparents, that they can trace their lineage through. It doesn't... I'm not denying by saying I have earthly parents and I have a history and a lineage. I'm not saying that that denies the fact that ultimately I am from God and I am his son. Does that make sense? So I don't mean it offensive to anybody within the Church of Christ movement or these other branches to say I'm going to look at where they came from historically. 
I'm not trying to deny this concept that exists within them that they don't want to have come from anywhere historically, save the New Testament and the New Testament church. But while that is the, the professed understanding of some within that movement, that doesn't change the fact that historically we're still able to go back and say, okay, I grew up at the Broadway Church of Christ in Lubbock, Texas. The Broadway Church of Christ was started in the early 1900s by a fellow who learned from a fellow named David Lipscomb, who learned from a fellow named Alexander Campbell, who is the fellow that we're talking about. And you can still trace an earthly heritage, if you will. Does that make sense? So last week we started this, and we started it by talking about two men who sought to put together a New Testament church. That would be a church based on the New Testament in faith and in practice as well. Those two gentlemen were Barton W. Stone, who uh, uh, Sandy's done some historical work on over the week because she said, wait, from Cook County, Maryland, it's got to be related to Tom Stone, who signed the Declaration of Independence. And she said, "Uh, yes, he is. He's the nephew. of So Barton W. Stone, Charles Charles County, sorry. Cook County's Illinois, Charles County, Maryland, and uh, uh, his uncle signed the Declaration of Independence for Maryland. But we talked about Barton W. Stone, who came out of the Presbyterian Church, and Alexander Campbell, who came from the Presbyterian Church as well, though he was not American-born. Now, these two gentlemen we talked about last week, and we're going to talk about them a little bit more. But if we chart where they came from, they came out of the Presbyterian church. And once they were baptized as believers, though they were both baptized as infants, Barton W. Stone baptized into the Church of England um, uh, and then uh, Campbell into the Presbyterian church. Once they were baptized as adults, they started worshiping and ministering within a Baptist church denominational association and so they were for lack of a better word baptists at that point in time in fact for a number of years 10 uh, i believe uh, alexander campbell published a journal called the christian baptist and uh, i've got it here we're going to look at some of the things in it this morning but they were baptists and then from the baptist church if you will or from that association will chart how they left the baptist church today and became what we know of as the disciples of christ or the christian church or the churches of christ uh because those are the three main labels used by people who historically have come from a progressive line of teachers out of that movement I think I said that in the right way. It's a good thing I'm a lawyer as I speak on this stuff because like every word's got to just be just right um, to do it. Now, it helps us if we understand the genesis of this movement called the restoration movement because it sought to restore the New Testament church. At the time, these fellows didn't necessarily call it the restoration movement. They called it the new reformation movement because they were seeking new reforms but ultimately it became known as either the restoration movement or the primitive movement the idea being that it was seeking to restore the church as it existed in its most primitive or new testament condition Um, if we look at christianity at the time we've already had the roman catholic church the roman catholic church gave birth to the lutheran church and the presbyterian church also 
either gave birth or separated out from the Anglican church, which we think of as Episcopalian. They're basically the same, but sort of different. But the Church of England, for lack of a better word, and from the Church of England, the Methodist church came out. If you've missed this, you've only missed the last two years we've been doing church history, and it's available on the Internet in handout form, or uh, you can download it to your iPod and listen to it when you need to go to sleep. Um, we've got... The Episcopal Church gave birth to the Methodist Church. The the Episcopal or Church of England also gave birth to the Congregational Churches. Just independent Congregational Churches, much like the Pilgrims and things of that nature. From the Congregational Churches came the Baptist Churches. And now through the Baptist Churches we'll find these uh, uh, other churches as well. And this is the condition of Christianity in the Kentucky uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Tennessee, West Virginia, though I, at the time it's still Virginia, area when Barton W. Stone and Alexander Campbell come along. And Barton W. Stone and Alexander Campbell are very concerned at all of these different groups because they believe that God's going to set up a millennial kingdom, but for the millennium to come, for the thousand-year reign, when Satan is bound, the church needs to be united. And so they want to see the church, especially Barton Stone, is really big on seeing the church reunited, and all of these different groups or denominations or sects taken away. And so the question becomes... What if instead of creeds, all of these people just followed the Bible? Let's take the Presbyterian Church with the Westminster Confession of Faith and get rid of the creeds. Let's take the Lutherans and get rid of the catechisms. The Catholics, get rid of the catechisms. The Episcopal Church, get rid of all of the creeds of all of these different denominations so that no one has a creed, no one has any statement of faith beyond simply the Bible. And if we can all agree to just use the Bible, we should see all of these denominations becoming Christians. And let's just be Christians Let's don't be Baptists, let's don't be Catholics, let's don't be Presbyterians, let's don't be Lutherans. Let's leave all of that behind and simply use the Bible and we'll be Christians. And the way we're going to get this done, Alexander Campbell's dad set out when he says what we'll do is where the scriptures speak, we'll speak. Where the scriptures are silent, we'll be silent. It's an easy way, he thought, to unity. Everybody's got their Bible. If the Bible says it, we believe it, we'll do it. If the Bible doesn't say it, we won't. Or at least we won't bind it on anybody else. Our basis for fellowship will be what the Bible says. No more. Now, that sounds like a pretty good plea to a lot of folks. It was a plea that got a lot of response. In the early 1800s, the idea was we will follow the biblical commands. Now, some things are not commanded, but you may have an example or you may have some inference where you really have to infer something in here. It's not an explicit command. It's just an inference. And I'll give you some examples in a minute. 
But the idea was we're going to follow the biblical commands. Now, on these things that you're inferring, for example, Paul um, stays in uh, 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 Corinth, according to the book of Acts. On one of his trips to Corinth, Paul stays there until Sunday to take of the Lord's Supper. So you, one might want to infer from that that the Lord's Supper was taken on Sundays because he stayed until Sunday to take it. Now, that's not necessarily what it means. It might mean that they had already set aside a Sunday to do it and that they were all going to meet together on that Sunday. And it wasn't the kind of thing where on Saturday they could get on the telephone because they didn't have good working phones in Corinth at the time and get everybody together because Paul's got to leave. So Paul hung on till the next day when they had scheduled the Lord's Supper. You know, it, it doesn't mean that they took it each Sunday, but you might infer that from it. And so based upon these inferences, people were setting up their practices of their churches at the time. But the idea behind this movement was we'll follow the commands. We will infer, but where we infer, we need to be cautious. Thomas and Alexander Campbell both said, let's be cautious because if we're not careful, we're going to take matters of interpretation and start making them tests of faith. And we'll never reach that unity. Okay? So this is what happens. Now, the problem with this process is over time it became something very different. Over time, the, the, the people in this movement said, we're going to follow biblical commands, we're going to follow examples, commended examples, and we're going to follow necessary inferences. And the caution kind of stepped away. And so within parts of the movement, and I always have to say parts because every church of Christ and every uh, Christian church is independent. We say, well, yeah, Baptist churches are independent too. Yes, they are, but there's still a difference. For Baptist churches, for example, at least some, there's the Southern Baptist Convention. And so the Baptist church adheres to, to certain aspects. They, they give at least a portion of money to a common uh, convention that, that does different things with it. And that does not exist within these restoration movement churches, at least the Church of Christ, it doesn't. There truly is no national structure at all. There are colleges that are within the, the movement, if you will, Abilene Christian College, Pepperdine, uh, uh, David Lipscomb, Freed Hardeman, Oklahoma Christian, Harding. There are a number of these colleges, but even the colleges are not controlled by anything other than the independent board of directors for that college. And those board members are usually required to be members of the Church of Christ. But there's no national structure. So anything I say, we've got to be very careful because it doesn't always apply. There are exceptions to every rule. So, so with me gingerly, having warned everybody, let me say that in the early 1800s, the attitude of Campbell's and Stone was, come join us around the Bible. Everybody, just come on. You're a Baptist, you're welcome to go to church at our church. 
They might call it a Christian church. They might call it Disciples of Christ. They might call it Church of Christ. They might call it all three. But you would be welcome to come in to that church and worship with them and just come gather around the Bible. That changes over time. Over time for many churches, in fact, I'd say most, it becomes see the way we do things. And if you do it our way, then you come inside the circle. You know, you need to be baptized our way, and then you come inside the circle. You need to agree to worship the way we worship, then you're welcome to worship with us. And so what I want to do is I want to try and chart through some of these changes historically. We're just going to take a stroll through 200 years of history in the next 30 minutes, and we're going to see how this came about and what happened. Now, again, again, I don't want my grandmother upset with me. I'm going to eat lunch with her, and I'm going to hear about this. Each congregation is fully independent, and what's true for one may not be true for others. I've had uh, Edward Fudge come fill in and teach for me at times. Edward Fudge is an elder in uh, uh, the Church of Christ. Um, Edward Fudge, uh, I have no trouble having him fill in and teach for me because the theology that Edward Fudge has is dead on with the the theology that that I would say 98% of us in this room have. Um, um, so, so different churches of Christ view these things differently. But with that as the warning, let's pick up our story with Stone and Campbell. Now, they're ministering in Baptist churches, and we need to add, doesn't it look like a third person should be up there? Yeah, we need somebody else. Let's throw up old Walter Scott, not to be confused with Sir Walter Scott, the, the, the poet from uh, Great Britain. Um, Walter Scott was a fella who was uh, actually turns into Alexander Campbell's best friend. But he's one of these really uh, um, charismatic in a charming sense. Uh, one of these had a lot of charisma. Um, one of these fellas who was a, a very good, clear teacher and speaker. And uh, Campbell took Scott with Campbell to a meeting of a Baptist church association at a Baptist church. And that Baptist church was looking for a preacher. And they kind of liked old Walter Scott. So they said, well, why don't you preach for us? He says, well, I'm glad I came today. I believe I will. And like that, he becomes this Baptist preacher. Now, he was a teacher, a strong teacher of what I would call the core gospel. The core gospel. And then in 1837, he kind of starts preaching a little bit differently on Acts 2.38. And this is a real hinge point within the movement. And so I want I want us to spend a moment and look at it. You told me three and six, didn't you? Yes. Um, this is uh, uh, Walter Scott wrote in in uh, the Bab Christian Baptist in the journal that was produced by by Alexander Campbell. And he wrote a number of different articles. Uh, I, I've pulled some of them to show you some of the strong core gospel message that he put out there. Um, let's see if I can make this work. AWC. All right, we're there. Look at this. This is what he's saying here. He's saying these things may suffice to show 
that the bond of union among Christians is the belief of a matter of fact, namely, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. What do you want to base your fellowship on? Who's your Christian brother? What churches? The basis for union is simply, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? If you believe that, then you are my brother and we can uh, fellowship together. He says it this way on the next page. He says, uh, one has only to believe in this name and his is eternal life. And this is after he's alluding to, though he doesn't quote it, uh, uh, the passage in John actually quotes it earlier. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may continue to believe in the name of the son of God. One has only to believe in this name and his is eternal life. Now, that's pretty blunt, didn't it? That's that's pretty blunt. He says it uh, uh, again later on. This is a few issues later. He says, uh, got it up there. And let no one think that anything's more is necessary to our salvation than to believe this fact. That Jesus is the son of God. That is the basis. And that's what he teaches. Things change, however, in the way maybe that he perceives things. Certainly in the way he speaks. When uh, uh, Walter Scott is preaching a sermon the same year that he's written these things, 1837, and some fella by the name of William Amend is in the audience. William Amend says, tell me about uh, baptism and Acts 2.38. Now, King James Version says, then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so when William Amen asked about this, Walter Scott's response was, well, Acts 2.38 says to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. William Amen said, Amen. <laughs> Um, and was baptized. His name was spelled A-M-E-N-D. So, uh, um, amend, amend him. And said, um, I, I want to be baptized. And, and Scott found this to be incredible. Because Scott started preaching this message and more and more people were responding by the droves. Scott was the one who came up with a five-point plan of salvation. And he came up with a five-point plan because he could teach it to children on their fingers. And he'd go into a town and he'd teach these children a five-fingered gospel message so that it would be easy for them to remember. It's a good memory aid. And he would use the scriptures to say you've got to have faith. And that Acts 2.38 passage, if you go to the verse before it, Peter's just been delivering the, the message about the fact that these folks killed the Son of God. And Jesus is not dead forever, but he's resurrected. 
And if you think about it and you don't understand grace and love the way we do, that could be a very powerfully dangerous message. If someone came up to you and told you without under, just try and take from your head all you know about the gospel and God's love and God's compassion. Okay? And someone comes up to you and says to you, you killed God. But you weren't successful because he's coming, he, he, he's back from the grave and he's coming back. Okay? That generally could strike fear in the hearts of people. And the response of the people to Peter is, oh no, what should we do now? And that's when Peter said, repent. So the people already had that faith. They believed. That's why they were asking what to do. So uh, uh, Scott says, first thing you got to do is you you, got to, I guess I start with the pinky here. You got to have faith. And from faith, you have repentance. Repent and be baptized. Next finger. For the forgiveness or remission of sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those were his five points. When I grew up, the five points had changed a little bit. In the Church of Christ, we had changed the five points by the time I grew up to hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. Okay? But it's the same idea. You have five points. It's easy to teach and easy to remember. And so it just changed over the decades since Walter Scott started teaching that way. But his was faith, repent, baptize, remission of sins, gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is what he taught. Now, if you had asked, I I don't know where Walter Scott would have landed on this, but I do know Alexander Campbell spoke about this very carefully because one of the accusations that was levied against these men is that they were preaching a salvation by works. The idea being that the baptism has some miracle washing power. And if you are baptized, you have forgiveness of sins. But if you do not get that baptism, then you still have your sins and you go to hell. And so Campbell was very clear even later in his life to say, please understand where I land on this. Campbell said that um, uh, you are really forgiven. You have your real forgiveness. Your real salvation comes from your faith in Jesus. But your formal salvation, and by formal, he means what other people see, what is apparent, your forgiveness comes in the baptism. So the baptism is the showing of the forgiveness that's received. And that's that's a consistent message with most uh, uh, evangelical Christian faith who believe in adult baptism even today. But there, I don't know where Scott landed on that. I can tell you that, that over time, the position taken by many of these mainline churches was that the forgiveness of sin itself comes from, if we back back up to that other slide, to the Acts 2.38 That the forgiveness of sins comes from not just repentance, but repentance and baptism. Okay. And you can read, I mean, there are massive books written about this subject. The Greek word ace, which is translated unto or for. Does it mean um, to get or because you have? 
Okay? In other words, do you go to jail for murder? That means you go to jail because you killed someone. If you're being baptized for forgiveness of sins in that sense, it means you're being baptized because you've been forgiven. But if the for means go to the store for bread, it means you're being baptized to get forgiveness of sins. You with me? So what's meant there, there are big debates. Those aren't the only two views. There are two of many. But in the process of this, let me work back through here. The Baptists say, okay, you guys, you're out of here. And the Campbells and the Scots and the Stones, they get booted out of the Baptist Association. It's really interesting to go back and try and see why. And, and uh, uh, nobody really sets it out real clearly. You've got a number of people who say there are so many obvious reasons we're booting them out. We don't need to list them. You've got a lot of analysts who've gone back and analyzed it. And it's really funny because some of the reasons that the churches of what became known as the, the disciples or the Christians or the Church of Christ, some of the reasons they got booted out would never get them booted out of a Baptist church today, at least not one that we're intimately familiar with. Let me give you some of the reasons. The Baptists at the time were very Calvinistic by that. They believed in predestination. God picks who's going to heaven and who's not. And if you're saved, you're saved because God picked you and he put his spirit in you to convict you of your sin and bring you to faith. The Campbells and the Stones and the Scots were not that way. They were very anti-Calvinistic and said, no, it's, it's man's choice, not God's directive. That didn't sit well with the Baptists. The Baptists would have communion periodically. The followers of Campbell and others were having it every Sunday based upon the Acts passage that I'd given you earlier. And so weekly communion versus periodic communion. The Baptists were Baptists. The Campbell followers said, let's don't have any name. And they weren't fond of using the Baptist name. So even though they were Baptist and members of the Baptist Association, if you ask them, they just say, we're only Christians. We just happen to attend a Baptist church type thing. And, and we happen to be members of a Baptist association, but our true religious affiliation is simply Christian. And so there was that issue. The Baptists had an association. And that ran contrary to what these folks who thought that each congregation should be totally autonomous with no greater affiliation beyond it. The Baptists believed that, that God calls certain people to ministry, like God called the Apostle Paul. You know, God, God, you know, Jesus clearly called some folks. And so this concept within the Baptist church was you get a call and within the Baptist churches at that time in this area, certainly not Spurgeon's, but in this area in the South, the, the teaching was you get ordained into ministry. And that's a sign that you've accepted the right things and believe the right things. And you have the ordination that goes with the calling. Okay. Um, the the Reformation churches said no. They say everyone's called. 
that's the understanding of the priesthood of all believers within this movement is everyone truly is called. There's no special calling. You might decide you want vocationally to preach for a living. But you don't have a special calling beyond that that everybody has to use whatever path they walk and whatever job they have to glorify God and to teach. And there's no specific ordination within this church as well. Uh, membership. If you wanted to be at the time a member of the Baptist churches in this association that they were, you had to give your testimony and you would get voted yes or no. And they would vote in or out. In the churches that are uh, uh, affiliated with the Campbells and the Stones, it's not that way at all. You had to have a confession of your sin and baptism. Then you could be a member of their church. Now, member I've used loosely because a lot of these mainline churches got to a point where your membership was never in a local congregation. Your membership is deemed to be in the church universal. So, for example, at the church I grew up in, if you uh, typically the responses to the invitation song would be one of three things. Either you were coming to be baptized or you were coming to ask for prayer or you were coming to what we would say place membership. But that's not what the church would say. It would say if you want to come be identified with us. Because there's no real particular membership. It's an identification with the Christians in this congregation. Your membership is in God's kingdom. Does that make sense? It's an interesting difference. Now, what you're seeing set up here as these differences start unfolding is a tug of war. Between two goals, there is one goal of restoring the church as it's perceived to be in the New Testament. There's another goal of trying to unite the churches together. And ultimately, in the grand scheme of this, uh, uh, the restoration folks tug a little bit stronger than the unity folks. Um, There are some issues that arise, though that I would like to point out with the idea of restoring the New Testament church. First issue, is there one New Testament church? And the church at Corinth, with their problems with speaking in tongues and all these other things, was very different than the church at Ephesus. You can read in Revelation the letters to the seven churches and see a great difference between those. In the Corinth church, they're having trouble with with uh, the orderliness of worship. You don't really see that in other places. There are issues about whether women should pray or preach with their heads covered. Or women should keep silent in the church. See, all these... Is there one New Testament church that, that is... Was there a standard and a pattern that all New Testament churches followed? Second question. Is the New Testament church the model church? Did God create it as a newborn baby expecting it to grow and mature and and kind of change within the confines of still being the body it is? Or was it created a fully functional, fully mature church never to change, never to grow? That's the second question. A third question, how do you land on examples and necessary inferences? You know, there are examples of things done in the New Testament church. When are they binding and when aren't they? 
you have in the New Testament church an example of a collection being taken. Does that mean a collection must be taken? You have an example in the New Testament church of, uh, of, of uh, the Lord's Supper on a Sunday. By the same token, you have an example in the New Testament, at least, of the Lord's Supper on a Thursday. Because that's when Jesus instituted it. So, you know, all of these questions uh, uh, become paramount and they become some issues that divided and identified these churches and marked them out as different than other churches, if you will. I want to talk about those issues. Um, The issues are are interesting. The first major issue they had was over over missions. How do you do missions? Because the general concept that had been working within the Baptist church was the idea that churches work together under a common missionary board or a missionary society to support and send missions out, missionaries out. These churches in the Reformation movement, including Alexander Campbell at first, though later he flipped on the issue, initially they said, no, each independent church should have their own missionaries. The missionary should, the churches should never join forces under a missionary society. It destroys the autonomy of the church. Every church should pick who they send. The the churches should not be doing it together. That was a big issue. Another big issue. To play or not to play. Because the organ is becoming prominent in the 1800s and starting to move into churches here in America. And so the, the, the immediate question that these folks have within the movement is, okay, you want to do something different. Let me check the Bible to see if it's okay. And you notice I say Bible, if it's a church issue, they're going to check the New Testament under the idea that the Old Testament was, quote, nailed to the cross, close quote. And so we don't sacrifice as we did under the Old Testament. We don't go to Jerusalem as we did. We don't uh, 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 keep the Feast of the Tabernacles. We don't keep... Uh, uh, Passover, we don't, we don't follow the rules for Israel under the old covenant. We live under the new covenant with the rules for the church. So let's look in the Bible in the New Testament to see if there's anything that justifies using instrumental music in services. And you look at the Ephesians passage. You look at the Colossians passage. You can look in Hebrews. And, and these folks came up, some with the decision, it's okay. Some with the decision, it's not. And, uh, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's interesting for me to look at because I look back at this now, having come out of this movement, and I think about how many hours I spent studying this issue. I mean, i got to tell you. I'll bet you I spent three or four hundred hours in my life studying this one issue. I'm glad I did because God's used it. But boy, I could use some of that time on a few other things right now that I really would like to. Oh, love to redeem a little bit of that if I'd have just had the answer I got now. And um, but uh, uh, you know, to play or not to play. These are big issues. These issues get aggravated within this movement by, of all things, the Civil War. The Civil War was obviously North versus South. And I am proud to say 
that almost all of the Christians within this movement, in North and South, were anti-slavery and and pretty vocal about it. But nonetheless, the war did sever good feelings between the North and the South, even amongst those Southerners that understood how horrible slavery was, in part because the South was left ravaged economically. And when, you know, you go back to World War II, we rebuilt Germany after we tore it apart to to defeat the evil of Hitler. We rebuilt Japan after we tore it apart to defeat the evil that came from there. But after the Civil War, that idea wasn't really there. And so there was no real rebuilding. If anything, the northern carpetbaggers came down and took further advantage of the South. And so the bitterness really grew even more after the war. Now, how does that translate in? Some scholars say that, for example, on the issue of instrumental music, church organs back then were not cheap. The northern churches within this movement were in cities by and large, and they had large attendance, and they had the profitability and the money of the north. The southern churches were very much more country churches that were set about every five to ten miles down the valleys in Tennessee and Alabama and other places. And they'd have six or eight or ten families attending. Certainly never the money to buy an organ. And so the northern churches tended to say, yes, instruments are okay. The southern churches tended to say, no, they're not. And you can almost draw the line between them at the Mason-Dixon line. Um, In 1906, as a result of this mission society question and the issue of instrumental music, a little over 2,600 churches withdrew their fellowship. Remember, I said there's no national structure. So 2,600 churches said, we will no longer fellowship or recognize as Christian Those churches that are practicing with instruments and those churches that are having a national uh, mission society. Those churches that segregated out took the name Church of Christ. Some of them already had it. Others of them were calling themselves disciples or Christian churches. Some of the churches that remained within the disciples and Christians kept the name Church of Christ. But by and large, the churches of Christ that we're familiar with, if you flip open the yellow pages and look in the back, are children, if you will, are descended, if you will, from these 2,600 churches that withdrew. Now, the churches of Christ have actually, I've got five minutes. I need to blaze some trails. All right, I'm going to talk a little quicker here, okay, because I want to get this. They, they, the churches of Christ themselves have split a number of times, though you don't see it in the phone book. And my friends who got some of my lesson would write me back and did write me back and say, no, we, the church of Christ has never split. The church of Christ is the true church of Christ. It's never split. And people who aren't part of the true church of Christ never were. But from a human perspective, as we look, the congregations that say, okay, this half stay in here, this half's going to go buy their new building across the street. What we would term a split happened over some common problems and uncommon. Some of the uncommon problems that were particular came about because they want to follow and consider binding an example or an inference. So, for example, no choirs. Why? Find me a choir in the New Testament. Can't do it. 
So if there's no choir in the New Testament, now you might be saying, well, there's a chorus of angels. You know, there seems to be a chorus around the throne of God in Revelation. The answer would be, yeah, but those aren't church services. Show me a choir in the church service. And so there's an issue and some churches split over whether or not you can have a choir. They split over whether or not you can use more than one communion cup. Because Jesus had one cup. They split over whether or not you can have Sunday school. Because there is no Sunday school. Families worship together. Those aren't the main. And and as Dale told me in an email, you can find Baptist churches splitting over such similarly bizarre things at times when we seem to be too focused in on things that that, uh, uh, almost look patently ridiculous. But some of the more common problems that they use centered around God and man and how we relate to each other. And there have been been issues within the churches of Christ, just like there are in the Baptist churches and others on this issue. I'm not throwing rocks at the church of Christ that I can't throw at most any denomination you want to bring me. Because this is inherently in our human DNA as fallen, depraved people who always seem to find a way to mess up the concept that God and humanity are related and God has embraced us because of the gospel. Because, as Walter Scott said, Jesus Christ died for our sins and when we accept that and believe that, we have eternal life. The only reason any human being goes to heaven is because God has reached down all the way through the work of Jesus Christ, and paid for 100% of our sin. 100%, not 99. 100%, not just accidental sin. All of them, intentional, unintentional, omission, commission. That's the reason any man is saved. The way humanity relates back up to God, that's our religion. That's our worship. That's our, dare I say, baptism. Our theology. And you will not find it perfect in any human being save Jesus Christ. No human being has perfect religion and relates and understands God perfectly. And the problem is, is when we cross those eras and get it all mixed up, and that happened in the Church of Christ like it does everywhere else. Church of Christ, there are big groups within it that changed and started thinking, instead of being saved by who we know, Jesus Christ, we're saved by what we know. We know what we're doing, and we're doing it right. And that's why we're saved. And that's the perennial joke, Dale, of when you're in heaven, Peter's walking somebody, and they go by a wall, and Peter says, shh, be real quiet. Why? Because the church of Christ are behind there and they think they're the only ones up here. The genesis for that joke. And the funny part is, is we can tell that joke about just about any denomination too. Because there is this inherent thing that we've, this idea, this crazy idea that's wrong, that we're saved by what we know instead of who we know. Because that's not the truth. The truth is we're not saved by what we we're saved by who we're not saved by what we do. There's not a one of us. 
saved because we're doing the right things. Nobody in this church is saved because we're worshiping 100% dead on right. There's not a church in the world that worships God 100% dead on right. Because you worship God dead on right 100%, you're going to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And God's more concerned about where your heart and your mind is in your worship than He is whether you're standing up or kneeling. Now, a great asset from these churches that I thank God for every day. I mean, I found Jesus in the church of Christ. That's where I met my Lord and Savior. And it brought up for me a wonderful love of Scripture. Because when the question, when, when, when any question is asked and the answer is, let's look in the book. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. And that's a great asset and strength of these churches. I don't have a lot of time, but I am going to tell you this. The disciples and the Christian churches split basically because the disciples went liberal and the Christians didn't. Okay? Points for home. <laughs> Unity. Unity is important. Jesus prayed that, that uh, all of his people would be one so that the world would know and believe. And, and it is a testimony. I've had the Mormons at my door telling me Christianity can't be true because there are hundreds of denominations. There's only one Mormon church, so Mormonism must be the truth. My response to them is always the same. I've heard this more than once. It's okay. Now, which part of the Mormon church are you? Are you the ones that are headquartered in Salt Lake or the ones out of Missouri? Well, those aren't real Mormons. Okay, are you one of the polygamous branches or are you? No, those aren't real Mormons either. I said, well, you know, as a practical matter, the church of people that I go to would say, well, those aren't real churches, you know. Um, but it does does make a difference to the world. You know, Paul writes it's important to keep the spirit, the unity of the spirit in a bond of peace. But uh, in the process of it, uh, so it's something I commend and something I work for and something I applaud. And, and I am delighted to have be here with my brothers and sisters. But I have no qualms going to other churches with other labels on them and finding brothers and sisters there as well. Because I do believe that there is one united church. You can call it the church of Christ. You can call it the church of God. You can call it anything you want to. But there is a united church that exists in God's kingdom's eyes. Point for home to gospel clarity. Please don't ever forget, engrave this on your hearts and your minds. Paul, at the end of his life, writes Timothy and doesn't say, I know what I've believed and I'm persuaded it's able to keep what I've committed to it against that day. He says, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that I've committed to him against that day. And finally, point for home three, the Bible. Interesting questions for Bible study that I'm not answering. I'm merely throwing out there. Speak where it speaks. Be silent where it's silent. Edward Fudge would tell you, yeah, be careful. Some of my brethren have gone wrong because instead of being silent where it's silent, we filled in the gaps. So be careful. But is that the right thing? Is there a pattern for the New Testament church? Or isn't there? What is the relationship of the New Testament and the Old Testament? How do we read it? How do we apply it? Can women wear pearls? I don't know. Pray with me. Lord, thank you so much for meeting us through the cross of Christ. Something all saved people have in common. And something that does unite us before you as family. And I pray that we will endeavor to seek how to worship and adore you more fully and more wholly. But in the process, Lord, never lose sight of how you have redeemed us. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here.
I pray for any who don't know you, that you will tug at their heart until they have no choice but to turn around and embrace your love. Through Jesus, I pray, amen.